Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Kaiser Education Series. My name is Gabe Derman. I'm Human Performance and Education Specialist at Kaiser. I'll be moderating tonight's panel alongside my teammate, Mike Compton. Today's discussion is centered around the topic of building a high-performance team. With the beginning of the 2022 NBA season underway, we are honored to be joined by two respected individuals that each have unbelievably impressive resumes. They spend a lot of time around high-level athletes, coaches, and organizations, and are both tasked with the oversight of performance for the respective MBA organizations. Our first panelist is Todd Wright. Todd is a vice president of player performance and assistant coach for the Los Angeles Clippers. He is currently going into his fourth season with the Clippers, working with the medical department, player development, coaching staffs, strength conditioning, and sports science to coordinate and integrate all areas of player performance. Before his time at the Clippers, he spent four years with the Philadelphia 76ers as an assistant and head coach of strength conditioning. He spent 21 years in college basketball at both Clemson and Texas and helped his teams reach the NCAA tournaments in 19 of those 21 years. Very impressive. He holds a number of coaching certifications, and he has served as faculty for the Gray Institute for Functional Transformation. He consulted for Nike Global Basketball, Nike Spark, and the Nike Performance Council. He has been speaking nationally on topics of functional performance and rehabilitation since 2006, has been featured in multiple fitness magazines, and founded Train for the Game in Austin, Texas, a leading facility in performance training. Welcome, Todd. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Our second panelist is Phil Coles. Phil is currently in his fourth season as Executive Director of Performance for the Boston Celtics. In that role, he leads all aspects of performance department and is a member of the senior leadership group considering overall team policy. Previously, he fulfilled similar roles at the San Antonio Spurs and with the Football Federation of Australia. Prior to that, he led the medical department at Liverpool FC and the Newcastle Knights in the NRL of Australia. Phil is an APA and US accredited physical therapist an ASCA accredited strength coach and an ESSA accredited high performance manager with nearly 25 years experience in professional sport. He has published articles in the world renowned journals on injury prevention and is focused on leadership development and growth. All right, Todd and Phil, thank you both for being with us here tonight. The NBA season is underway. How are we feeling about this journey ahead? Todd, we're going to start with you. Well, you know what? It's a long year, and uh, we're only four games into it. And um, as Phil can attest to, there's, there can be a lot of changes in those 82 games. And so um, I'm excited about the, the group of people that we have together, not only from our performance um, department, but the group of guys that the organization has put together. And so um, on paper, we look really, really good, which really doesn't mean anything. And, um, but we're excited to try to put all those pieces together and, uh, and the journey's officially started, but I love the group of people that, uh, we have in our areas, but our, our leadership group put an amazing group of guys together. And so I'm excited to see where it goes. And Phil, how are you feeling? Yeah, good. I mean, glad to get it back underway. Obviously we're coming off, uh, you know, a really good season last year where we, we um, performed well and fell just short. So I think when you have that experience, you know, it, it does bond the group together and, and makes everyone determined to do that little bit better. Um, but at the same time, it's daunting because you're, you're back at square one and you're back with every other team who has the same ambition at this point in time. Um, you know, it's a long season. There's going to be a lot of twists and turns. Uh, but yeah, as Todd said, we're, you know, we're in a similar boat that we've got a really, a really good team. We're, 
both on and off the court, we're really comfortable with where we're at. And um, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to getting into it and we'll see, we'll see if it takes us back to the, to the level we got to last year. Yeah, obviously a super impressive year last year and, and congrats on that. And then Todd, to see you guys at full strength now, this is really awesome. We're really looking forward to seeing what you can do in the Western Conference there. So, uh, well, we'll get into this conversation and uh, it seems that in 2022, a lot of professional organizations and even universities at the college level have adopted a high performance model or at least trying to consider a more holistic approach to athlete well-being. Before we get into the depth of the conversation, though, what does the term high performance mean to the both of you? And Phil, we're going to start with you, then we'll kick it over to Todd. I mean, I guess really for me, it's about creating an environment that allows people to perform at their best, you know, in its, in its simplest terms. You know, you know, in a very basic physical sense, it's about giving your athletes the durability to be able to practice and play at the level they need and then it's about athletic development to give them the physical tools to not just compete but to excel um, but I think beyond the, the physical nature of high performance it really is developing into a much more holistic picture of, of creating that environment and that can include you know the, the logistics of how things are done within an organization it can include you know the skill acquisition area and, and development in that space and Probably most importantly, the, the personal development with players, you know, and that can be from their personal wellness and their mental skills performance to their leadership development and, and creating an environment and systems which help players develop in all of those spaces um, really helps us work towards our end goal, which is having thorough, process-driven, curious and ultimately independent athletes who, who you can put in any environment and, you know, their skills can then allow them uh, to shine. And, and we hopefully, as a high performance group, are giving giving them the best opportunity to do that. Yeah, Todd, go ahead. You know, I, I think that the key word that um, that Phil shared is is environment, right? Like you you want to create environments that that um, that bolsters every area possible that can influence the athlete's performance, right? And and so, you know, we have a unique job that um, no matter where this, the players are in their life cycle of their career, it's our jobs to try to build out those environments to create support for, for any need that potentially could come up for that athlete, no matter where they are in that part of their life cycle. So, for example, you know, we may have older guys, right, that have had, you know, some injury history and surgeries. Like, do we have a toolbox that can provide them? The, the, their ability to maximize their performance where if you have a younger guy that hasn't been as, um, you know, as banged up and is coming in and needs a different, a different plan, do you have all those tools in that toolbox to help support every area of pillar of the pillars of performance that can, that, it, that can influence the athlete. And, you know, Phil shared a couple of those, um, those, those pillars, but, you know, in regards to food, sleep, mental skills, you know, how you move and how you train, um, building out those systems with each, you know, person that's in charge of their respective areas. And then, you know, just try to aggregate as many marginal gains as you can out of each one of those areas to just help influence the athlete, you know, and, and hopefully giving him a positive trajectory 
um, in his performance experience. Yeah, so some of the key terms that uh, both of you shared together and kind of the overlap there is environment, uh, which you pointed out, uh, Todd, that Phil said systems and pillars and support are kind of the big things there. So let's get into that a little bit. We see on your staffs, we have PT, nutrition, athletic training, strength conditioning. Todd, we'll go to you first on this one, then we'll go over to Phil. Tell us about how you've organized those systems on your respective staffs, starting with the beginning of your tenures, which for both of you is about four years ago. Uh, and then the evolution into what it is today. Sure. Um, you know, when I first had the opportunity to to link in with the Clippers, I came in, you know, trying to take a thousand foot view at, at all the spaces. And obviously there were some people within those spaces that have had highly successful careers um, in the NBA. And so you really want to try to respect and understand the qualities of why those people have had those careers. Um, even though in the back of your mind, you have a particular uh, sense of how you want to maybe structure this. So the first year I took that thousand foot view and, um, and we got hit with the pandemic. And so the view kind of got a little skewed and, and Phil, I think you and I both started right around the same time. Maybe you might've started the year before me, but that, that altered how you, um, looked at evaluating the space. But it also overturned some cards that you could really see the character of some of the people that were already in the space and what they were made of. Um, and so that was a that was a great um, start for me to be able to evaluate. We we do have a very large staff. We're really lucky that we have um, we've been given the resources to create um, a staff that can you know allow us to make sure that we're on every aspect of a player's performance. And so um, we do have four or five um, people in the performance area that, um, that help us, including a G league strength coach, but um, the head strength and conditioning coach has a, has a, um, a performance coordinator title that allows me to, you know, feather him into some of the, the leadership qualities and, and coordinating um, some of the performance areas because he's so well connected with the players. Um, and then we have two assistant strength coaches that are full-time and then a G league strength coach, um, our sports science department. Uh, we have two, um, young men that really complement each other. One in Jay Porterfield and another one in Adam Virgil that they have, um, some diverse skills that really complement each other. Um, you know, our, we have a pretty large kitchen staff that, um, is, is, um, we have an executive chef and two assistant chefs and then a, an intern, um, and then we have a sports dietitian that we just acquired um, in the last year, which has been an amazing hire for us. And then we have our sports psychologist area that uh, Sarah Hickman leads, and and uh, she has a very diverse background in in some MBA and football and and special forces. That um, she's a great resource for our team, and um, we're we're overseen by um, John Meyer who is, um, he is the chairman of the Performance Health and Wellness Group. Um, John and I met back in uh, 2004 at a, a school called, um, Apply, out of Applied Functional Science. It was called GIFT, Gray's Institute of Functional Transformation. And at the time, John was uh, overseeing all of Southern Cal um, Athletics, USC. And, um, and he was a PT. And and uh, when I linked up in Philadelphia, we had some issues. So I, John and 
I brought John in to consult and help us a little bit. And, and then sure enough, John got this Clippers position and, and uh, brought me over. Um, our medical group is a, is a large, large group where we have a director of medical services, Jason Powell. And, and then we have a director of rehab is uh, Maggie Bryant. And we have a senior PT that's Jesse Phillips, who has spent some time in the NBA and, and, um, and we have a, an assistant trainer, Tommy Murdoch, and and then a couple other um, staff members that bolster that that area in Colby Clarity and uh, Ra Raul Gonzalez. So it is a large staff. And then, you know, I kind of clumped the perform the uh, player development staff into um, the performance staff to a certain degree, and we we work very closely with those guys and 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 communicate with those guys on a, on a daily basis. And so there's probably eight or nine people in that group. Um, so it's a, it's a really large group, which can create, um, you know, really makes you think how you can communicate on a daily basis to, to make sure that, you know, everybody's just hearing things that could potentially be happening that could help the athlete, you know, go from where they are to where they want to be. Um, but that's basically our staff. And, you know, the, the performance staff is Daniel Shapiro is my head strength and conditioning coach, who's been in the league for probably 15, 16 plus years. And he's one of the best connectors I've ever seen in the business. He's amazing with the athletes. And, and you mentioned Wes Long earlier, who we were lucky to steal from UCLA um, some months back and, and has, you know, a, a solid 15 year background in, in college basketball, but, those two complement each other really well. And then we have Randy Shelton, who's an assistant strength and conditioning coach for us. And Eric Hodgen is uh, another one of our coaches. So um, big staff. And uh, and it's great. I, I actually, I love a lot of moving pieces. I love action. and and uh, But I'm really proud of the group that we've put together. They're great people and uh, some great, great stars that have been in it a long time. And then we have some young talented people that I think that'll be um, amazing in their in their respective spaces. Well, I, I'd say it's really great to see, you know, organization uh, put the resources and dedicate the resource to building a staff like that, which is really awesome. And we are going to talk a little bit further about managing and the communication side of a staff that's that larger, um, you know, a staff of any size. So Phil, how about yourself? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the organization of your staff there with the Boston Celtics and evolution from where you started to where it is now? Yeah, we're, I mean, similarly set up as, a, as I guess a lot of themes are. Um, you know, I would say the Clippers are, are renowned for uh, their staff support, you know, so um, I'm sure, Todd, you, you know, with the staff that size, you know, managing it in a way to get the best out of everyone is a, is a challenge, but, but a but an enjoyable one because you've got you've obviously got a lot of talent at your disposal. Um, yeah, we're, we're we're somewhat similar. I was lucky coming in uh, four years ago that my predecessor Johan Billsborough had done a had done a lot of the hard yards in terms of establishing a, a sports science evidence based culture in the group. So really, me coming in uh, was more about taking that group forward in, in one direction and helping it evolve rather than sort of starting from scratch and having to, to build from there. Um, in terms of numbers, I think we have nine full-time staff who are in the, you know, the, the core component of that, of that what, what we refer to as the performance group. And that has, you know, from, from medical staff, sports science staff and strength and conditioning staff. 
Uh, we have four people in the nutrition realm led by our chef who is a who is a dietitian which is you know which is nice to have and then we have three performance staff with our g league team who integrate with us through training camp and different points uh through the season um and a couple of you know part-time doctors who, who are super accessible to us and we're, we're really lucky to have uh so you know so the the structure of the group hasn't changed a lot. You know, we've had a little bit of change in personnel as over the over the boys I've been here, but the structure is in place. And my role really is just ensuring that we have a a common philosophy in that group. You know, ensuring that we have clear processes of how we want to achieve that that philosophy um, is to hold people accountable within our group um, to to following that process, uh, and then ultimately it's to help support. Uh, protect to a degree and develop the staff within within that high performance group you know and we've got some incredibly talented people um and if i can help support them and protect them and develop them then we'll get you know we'll, we'll see results as a group from that you know i think beyond that you know it's you know obviously as i'm sure todd is in a similar position but on the primary conduit from the performance staff through to the coaches to the general manager um, at times to the you know, to the media or through to the player agents, um, and then sitting in on the sort of senior management group for the franchise, it allows us to ensure that that the high performance group has uh, some representation. You know, so at, at, at higher levels, and it allows us to have to to ensure that there's always a high performance consideration with everything we do, you know, as a franchise as a whole. Um, but yeah, it's a you know it's a it's a fun group. It's it's a people who've you know agreed and built together on sort of the core values we have and we want to take forward. And I think we're we're in a good spot to to keep getting better. Hopefully, awesome. I think you guys highlighted on the fact that there's so many different disciplines that need to come together within a high performance team in order to solve a problem. But although you guys face challenges every day, can you guys speak to one big challenge that you face when building out a high performance team? The idea of a high performance team to the organization, maybe push back on adding another position or just managing different personalities with that um, much people on your staff. Phil, we'll go to you. What's like one of the biggest challenges that you face so far when building out your team? I think that probably one of the challenges is, you know, it's an inherently unstable industry. So you do get quite a lot of change, you know, as coaches change and, and general managers change and staffing can sometimes change around that. And so, yes, there's not always been a clear core philosophy that's brought each group together. And sometimes people can be inherited um, who may not have the same core values to their approach. Um, and that could be a challenge to, to take people to come from, from different backgrounds and with different experiences and, and ensure that you do have a common philosophy. Now, there's a lot of benefit to having people of different experiences and backgrounds if you can get to that common point because it, it obviously brings a lot of diversity of thought and a lot of new ideas um, and it, you know, it breaks you out of your, your bubble, so to speak, and it can really be a hugely beneficial thing as long as you have the basic core values that match um, and that's the, the challenge is ensuring that you do have that and because we are in that inherently unstable industry um, and and people move around a lot you know when you come in as a leader figuring out you know who is 
who who does have that core values that will match. And then hopefully you get that from people of all different backgrounds and experiences and, and you can add that diversity while you build out the common philosophies. But getting everyone on that same page and doing it with including everyone's skill sets and doing it with empowering people to do what they do well, um, but still ensuring that's all being done in a common way with a common philosophy for a common outcome. Yeah, that's the, the challenge. And um, and if you get it right, then you have a really successful group, you know, but but it's, it's, not, it's not always easy. And, you know, Todd's been in the industry, you know, the same length of time as me. You know, I'm sure we've, we've, you both have, we've both had positive and negative experiences with getting to that point in different groups, you know. Uh, before we flick it over to Todd, uh, Phil, when you talk about core values, is that the core value of the high performance team or is that organizational core values or is it intertwined between the two? I think it's both. So interestingly, when I first came into the group, I, I presented, you know, in my first year, we kept all of the staff who were there and, and I came in and, and tried to present. This is the core values that I would bring in to the group. You know, and you know, I listed five things and said these are the things that I think are important for us to be able to build and work together. And then over the the process of the four years, we've we've come back to the table at the end of each year to review that, and we've been able to absorb the core values of everyone into that that uh, sort of diagram that we start our operations manual with. You know, so we started as a performance group. What are our core values? And that really started with me coming in saying, this is where I would like us to be as a group, but I don't know where we are as a group. And then over the four years, then people adding their thoughts to it. So now I think we, we have very clearly articulated core values as a group that came from the group. It wasn't something that I had to impose on them. So, so I'm really comfortable with, with where we've got to that. And as an organisation, we've actually gone through that over the past two years gone through a similar process which has ended up with sort of organizational wide values which we've talked about firstly articulating and then secondly how do we how do we live these values and so it's been interesting because we've done it at both levels and you know and they match to a fair degree which is nice but but there's some differences as well and and, and that makes sense because ours are a little more particular to you know a high performance group whereas the organizational the franchise wide values are a little more generic for the types of people that, that that we, we at the Boston Celtics want to have and the, and the types of ways we want to behave and the ways we want to move forward. Great. I appreciate that insight. Todd, over to you. Any similarities as far as challenges go or um, a different kind of like uh, perspective as well? No, I, I think it's a great compliment to Phil's, um, you know, leadership acumen that it's driven, you know, he, he keep using the phrase, the, uh, the common values, right? Like what do we share, you know, value-wise as a group? And just coming into, you know, the, the opportunity with the Clippers, I tried to really think about the things that I would really value just in being around high-performance sport for 29 plus years. What were the most important things that, that I could share that with the staff as, a, as we entered? And, um, you know, Phil mentioned another piece that was, you know, change is the common denominator in our business. It's every year there's some kind of movement, you know, whether it's staff, whether it's players, whether it's coaches, whether it's management. And so finding people that can, that can, that are resilient enough to be able to adapt to change 
fast, I think is a key quality to have and, and be able to evaluate as you're bringing in new positions. Do, do these people have some of those qualities? Um, but when I think of core values, like defining those for the people within the interview process, like just being in sport for as long as I have, I value, I would call it the four C's. And the first C that I really value, I value people that are connectors. They have a certain amount of emotional intelligence that they can not only connect with athletes, but they can connect with their teammates. Um, I love people that are highly competent, that in their skill sets, that they have a competency level that that is maybe differentiating themselves from the rest of the group and the skills at the people that work in that, in those respective fields. And with that, with that component usually comes a little bit of a growth mindset. Like you just love learning what, what you're in charge of. Um, but we're in a business of winning. And so I love competitive people, um, you know, that they, they just love to compete, right? It's, it's something that I think that it's important that, I, you know, we, we get judged on winning and losing. And so that has to matter. Um, but the last piece I learned from a coach, one of the coaches that I worked for that was awesome was, can you cooperate? And, you know, there's, there's a lot of really smart people out there that are really, really skilled. But when I think about the cohesion to a performance staff, it's the ability to cooperate, not to say that there's not positive you know, tensional friction at times. I think that that can really allow a group to really grow. But at the end of the day, can you have some conflict resolution and some communication skills that you can all play in the sandbox together? Um, and at the end of the day, the leader in the group is going to make the decision on where we're going to move with it after everybody has their input. Um, but those are some things that I really value and, um, and other people in the organization value those things. And so I, I agree with Phil. I would, I would say if you're going to design a team, just make sure that you're evaluating what core values um, that if they all share them together. But I think the cooperation piece is, is, is a key piece in high performance. If you always have tensional friction the entire time, I don't think it, I think it can be, uh, very detrimental to the environment. Um, I do love, you know, constructive, like, hey, I, I disagree. Okay, why? Like, let's sound it out. But at the end of the day, someone in that sandbox has to make a decision. Can you be an adult and be okay and not leave the room and, you know, start, start cutting someone down at their knees because we went in a different direction? And I, and I think defining those things uh, up front is really important to create an environment that everybody understands how how we're going to act as a group you know i love, love the the linking of competitive and cooperative because i think that gives you both elements you know when you've got people who are competitive they want to put their best foot forward and they want to drive the program uh, and that's that gives you new ideas and it gives you ways forward you know and a competitive environment is great as long as you have the cooperative environment, you know, right. so I think you summed that up well. We had a, I had a GM and he was an assistant GM who's now moved on to be a GM elsewhere, but, you know, he had a phrase of disagree and commit, you know, and that was to promote sort of, you know, discussion and debate and, and really hash it out. And then once we got to a decision, you know, whichever side of that argument you were on, everyone commits to that and everyone gives it the best chance to work. 
you know, we use a phrase here, which is um, it's, you know, behind having disagreement behind closed doors and one voice through open doors. Yeah. So when we get together as a group, we want people to discuss and debate and do that freely and challenge each other in a positive way. Um, but once that door opens and we're presenting to anyone else, then, yeah, we've got one voice and, and we'll support that. Agreed. So both of you just provided some some awesome little nuggets there, and I'm going to dig a little bit deeper on the competitiveness and cooperation part. Todd, how is that... How do you vet for that when looking to onboard somebody? How do you how do you evaluate that? Um, yeah, if I told you, I'd have to kill you, and I don't want to. <laughs> no, it, it's not. It's not that. It's not that complicated. I think that you, you know, as I've as I've learned how to become a better leader year after year, I think it's okay to ask uncomfortable conversations because you have to do what's best for the organization. And so in those interviewing processes, I think it's important that you overturn some of those things and, and try to see if, you know, if you're able to cooperate and, and play in the sandbox and, and just how, how much do you value competitiveness? Um, you know, I love how Phil tied in the competitiveness to, um, you know, being able to say what you think is right. And that's what you want. You want people in the environments that that they say what they think is right, that can help move the, the model forward or the athlete forward. Um, but in the, in the interviewing process, I, would, I always really try to focus on those four things. And then I try to ask questions that would try to, you know, see if they could potentially fall into those categories. Yeah, those really, are great. Didn't really answer yeah. the question, but I, <laughs> I, 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 but, I would have to, it would probably take a long time to actually give you the specifics to it. And, and, um, but most interviewing processes, I, I would really like to learn personally where they've come from, you know, some of the adversity they've been through in their life, you know, some of the jobs that they've actually done in their life besides high perform anything in high performance. It's like, do they come from large families? What's the biggest adversity they've overcome in their lives? Um, what's the largest group of people that they've worked with? you know, um, you know, how, how would they grade themselves on how coachable they are? Um, those are, you know, vague things that, but I do think it's important to understand those things before you onboard somebody. Yeah. And that ties in a little bit. What Phil was saying was that you could have these diverse experiences and backgrounds. It could be something that's outside of high performance could be something you've never even heard of yet. The core values still remain the same. And those are the types of people that you're looking for, which is really great. So I mean, the four C's connectors, competent, competitive, and uh, cooperation cooperative. So that's really great. Appreciate you guys sharing, uh, continuing the conversation around onboarding for, our listeners that are either currently in or hope to be directors of VP roles and oversee staffs of their own, there comes that time when you're looking to add a new position to your staff. Um, maybe you guys can both speak on this, but help us understand what that process is like when you're trying to add a new position, not just a new individual and you know, going to upper management or someone that oversees your department and justifying why this position is important. You know you need it for your team. You've been wanting for it. Um, you've been there for a few years and now you're like, hey, we're ready to do this. What's that process like? to justify a position. Phil, I'm going to start with you. Well, honestly, I've always been really lucky with, with management that I've worked with. Um, 
that I think if you if you go about these things in the right way that you know everyone in any professional team wants the team to win you know so for me when we're looking to add someone that I mean the first thing is you identify a need you know that you see a, a, a need in your program in your group that, that you need to fill and then you clarify you establish what are the skills that we really need to address that um, from there, I think you then, for me at least, I'd like to define a role fairly specifically. I'd like to come up with, okay, this is what we need. This is where we're lacking. These are the skills we need. What's a role? How can I define a role that would give us a practical way to get there? Um, and once you've got that clearly defined role that that brings in the skills you need, that that then fills the gap that you need, I think it's sitting with management and explaining that, you know, and then, then it's going through the budget process. And I've been lucky to be in environments where we're not super restricted by budget, but I've also, you know, had, you know, significant involvement with AFL and NRL teams in Australia where the budgets may not be as high for staffing. Um, and I've always by nature been, let's say, frugal, might be the nicest way to, to put it. Um, I've had multiple general managers say to me, it's not your money. What are you worried about? Um, but, you know, I think if you can, you can show the need and you can show a role that has a very clearly defined practical outcome to get there, then it's easy to sit with the, the powers that be and establish what budget you need to, you know, you're going to need to fill that. Um, I think from there, the, then to me, it's, and it's not always the case, but I think if you can have an, an open, a transparent process to bring that person in, um, that does a couple of things. One, it it allows, it gives that person the best chance of success because everyone is aware that it was a transparent process to bring them in. Now, the easiest thing in the world for me or, or for Todd in his position would be just to go and pick that person who I've worked with before who I know exactly how they function. Um, and as there might be times where that's a necessity for a group, you know, but if you can open it up to a, to a transparent process, it just allows your, your opportunity to get more diverse thought into the, into the group. So, um, so that would be my next step is to try and establish that transparent process. And then where I think I've fallen down in the past, um, you know, and sort of considered the, the onboarding component as an afterthought, whereas I think that really needs to be, again, to give the people you bring in the best opportunity to be successful. Um, a thorough onboarding process is super important, you know, and that looking at both the, the personal onboarding, you know, are they coming with a family? Do they need support for the kids? Do they need help finding schools? You know, they're really practical. Are they coming on their own? Do they have any contacts outside of the franchise? Um, do they need help with accommodation? The, 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 the more personal things I think, you know, we need to take care of. And then, from a professional sense, I think the onboarding starts with, you know, really what we talked about in the last question, but it starts with establishing the core values that you currently have in the group. Now, hopefully you've attracted the person who matches those and, and your interview process was designed to do that. You know, yeah, the values said for us that evolved, but we articulated as a group at the end of the last season were to be thorough, to be process driven, to be accountable, to be evidence-based, to be practical, and to be enjoyable. And now that we've articulated them and agreed on them as a group, if we bring someone else in, you know, hopefully we've 
we've established we think they match those, but we can articulate them very clearly and say, this is what we're trying to achieve as a group. This is your clear job description. This is the organisational structure we have so you understand what other people do. This is what you will be held accountable to in your role. And this is where your opportunities are to drive us forward. This is how you can suggest change. This is how you can drive change. Uh, this is how you go about creating change. Um, so I think having that onboarding process really linked to your recruitment uh, is, a, is a significant part of getting the most out of the person you bought. And I know certainly I've failed in that in the past where you, you put all your focus on getting the person in and once they get there, you're kind of like, thank God they're here. We think this person's going to be good. Let's see how they go. Um, and I, I don't think that's been fair. So, you know, we, we, we try now and, and we'll continue to try to get better at, at following that onboarding process. Yeah, I appreciate the insight. It's a great answer. And thank you for that. And you mentioned uh, sometimes the easy thing to do is to hire someone that you had a previous relationship with. Um, Todd, I know if that executive chef is really good cooking up some good meals, <laughs> sometimes the easy thing to do is to make sure you bring them along. So um, how about, sometimes uh, that's a necessity. Can I say, it? <laughs> you know, I've done that you know, multiple times in my career. So sometimes for, for the time you have available or for a very specific skill set you need, sometimes that's a necessity. So I'm not mm -hmm. suggesting that, that I've never done that or, or I don't think it's appropriate. I just think if you can work through an open and transparent process, that's even better. No, I, I agree with the open and transparent process. That there's obviously, we've had experiences with people in our careers that we know that fit those core values. But in order for your entire group to understand that you're just not handpicking somebody, you got to make it a, a, diver, a diverse group and, and bring people in that they think could do a great job, you know, and, and let, and, and like I said, we live in a competitive world. Let those, let those people compete during, during the process. Um, there were a lot of pieces that Phil just said that I've, that, um, that I think are great. I think the one biggest one and Phil, you've, you and I have both recognized this is, some of the some of the choices that you and I have both made have really influenced our families and and they're huge they're massive they're you know they're massive changes um and so when I think about the onboarding process this when I onboarded with the with the clippers, it was amazing. I couldn't believe the detail which they included my family and my, the, my children and like they all felt they couldn't wait to get to California just because of how the, the company, you know, chose to, um, you know, make them feel welcome. I think it's a huge part in the process. Um, and if you could do that, it takes so much stress off the person coming into the environment that's actually you've hired, right? Um, and I thought that was a great point. Um, when we onboard people, obviously giving them a description that's really specific to what their roles and activities will look like and then explaining to the current group what they what those roles are going to look like right we've, we've acquired this person to come in here and do these things there's always going to be you know in the initial part you hire people that are competitive and that are meat eaters so there's always going to be a little bumping and you know getting out of the gates and and so making sure that that gets navigated positive in a positive way is key um but i think that the what i've learned in the short time in doing this is front facing that person with individual meetings with the players 
And so, cause they're the, they're the, they're going to be serving the players. And so in some environments that I've been in, you know, you just kind of drop the person in and you're like, there you go, you know, and, and watching it and learning from that. I know that um, just getting a face to face and, and, and for the, the, the player to understand the skill sets that this person has and why we fired them. I think that's a key link in getting, getting them out of the gate. Um, but to Phil's point, I thought the family piece was big because I've done this several times and, uh, and I've been able to learn just how each, um, you know, organization has gone about it. And the, the onboarding to where I'm at right now was, was absolutely amazing for my family. And it just gave me a breath of fresh air that I could go in the door and try to stop doing what I was capable of doing. Um, so I actually thought that was a great question that you guys came up with. Thanks for sharing that, Todd. You don't normally hear that from like a professional organization, you know, focusing on family first, making sure they're comfortable and then bringing them to the organization. So that's really nice to be able to pull back that curtain in here. Uh, switching gears a little bit, say what you want, meetings happen. Um, what does a high performance team meeting look like? Uh, is it important to bring in the coaching staff to help with planning, problem solving? Is there subset meetings? Uh, Phil, we'll go to you first. What does a high performance team meeting look like uh, within your organization? So we have two, I guess, two different high performance group meetings where all of the performance staff will meet separately from the coaches. We'll get to that in a little bit. The coaches are an essential part of, of, of integration of a high-performance program. But um, as a performance group, we have uh, what we call update meetings. We do those every shoot-around. So, yeah, that's you know, 82 games in the regular season. We're going to have 82 times when normally when the players go into their film, then the performance staff will get together and we'll have a 15-minute period where we'll run through the group player-by-player. Uh, and we'll have a brief few minutes then as a group together to throw anything out there that we all need to, you know, to be on the same page with. Um, on top of that, we have uh, high performance development meetings. Now, those are ones where we table specific topics for debate uh, and they're, they're longer meetings. They're about an hour. And, you know, we, we start the season with the idea that we'll do these every two weeks. The reality as the season goes on is that they get less and less uh, common. Um, Hopefully, because you've addressed most of the issues you want to you address, but um, but we have those which are sort of the more in depth discussions of our processes, of our philosophies, of what we're trying to do, um, and so we we try and do them every couple of weeks. Um, the the update meetings we do all the time. So um, in terms of involving the coaches, part of my role is. You know, being that conduit from our group to the coaching staff. So I sit in on every coach's meeting and I think that's incredibly valuable for, um, for myself and for someone who represents the performance group to be there, not just to give an update at the start of the meeting, but to be there through the discussion of a whole meeting because um, it means I'm, I'm always able to have a good understanding of exactly what the coaches are trying to achieve in any given session, in any given game, any given period of the, the season. Um, and I'm always there to be able to have a, a level of influence in that based on the, you know, the, the agreement we have coming out of the high performance group. So um, that relationship with the coaches is essential. So we can, as a group, agree everything and we can have great plans and 
and ideas, but unless we have good integration and acceptance with the coaching staff, it's going to be very hard to implement those. So um, we achieve that by having myself as a conduit, although I do encourage all of our staff to freely talk with the coaching group, you know, because we want to have open relationships amongst anyone, but um, we ensure that we have a common message that comes from our update meetings and, and, and I'm generally conduit into the coaches' meetings. Um, the other thing that, I, that, you know, in terms of how we involve the coaches is that I've always stressed, and, and I'm, I'm not sure where Todd sits on this, but you know, probably similar, but th there is certainly different viewpoints that um, ultimately most, nearly everything that happens in a, in a practice session and certainly everything that happens in a game is a coaching decision. So I look at it as, as we're there to provide the best advice we can on the preparation of players, you know, the preparation of the environment and what the players need to do to be able to perform at their best. But the coach is considering not just my opinion, but the opinion of, you know, other coaches and the opinion of the general manager. And he's considering the psychology of the players. And, and ultimately, the coach is the primary person responsible for the team result once, they, once they're out on the court. So I always defer to the fact that the coach is the, the final person who should make the decisions as to how the practice session is put together. Um, and in the best coaching relationships I've had, you can have good, honest debate with them sometimes on, on how that plays out. Um, and so hopefully you feel that they value your input and you can have some influence over how that program has been put together. But I never want a coach to feel that I'm dictating exactly how a session should play out because I think ultimately that's a coaching decision. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, Todd, did you want to elaborate from your point of view as well? I, I would agree with Phil that, um, you know, our job is to gather information in all these different performance areas to be able to share with the head coach so he can make great decisions, right? Um, but it's not our job to make, to make those decisions, but it's our job to, you know, aggregate as much information and data that could potentially help him think about something or look at, look at it in a different way. And so um, they are crucial. Uh, the co well, the coaching staff is crucial and, and management, right? How they want these players to be developed. And, um, you know, we're very similar in how um, Phil does his meetings. We, we meet during shoot arounds and, um, you know, when we're on the road, we'll just, you know, all climb up into a particular part of the stands as we're going and, and circle up around uh, each one of our players. We will every couple of weeks have one with the player development staff. And it's, that's been interesting because we, we learn things from a different perspective from each individual coach that's working with each player. Um, and it allows us to um, try to teach the player development staff a little bit about sports science and what we're tracking and why and why we would make potential suggestions and so it allows us to you know create some continuity and some connection with player development and performance a little bit um, I find those that those have been really helpful and then uh, you know other layers to our meetings we will have just the department heads you know we'll gather those people together sometimes at, at, at particular times of the year um, but there may be you know, a particular topic that comes up in, in, you know, what we're looking at the force plate data and, 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 you know, set a meeting for that for 45 minutes. Um, we've, we've tried to create other layers of communication. And, and so, you know, we've, we've run through a Slack channel that 
that allows our group to, as things happen live, that maybe we could share that we wouldn't actually be able to see until we had the next day if when we met. And so that's been helpful. And then um, we've created a what we call a daily deck. And a daily deck has basically five or six major variables of, of functioning of the program that we share every morning. So when you wake up in the morning, um, you can open that deck and, and gather what happened the previous day and uh, and in regards to you know where players are in, in their return to play processes and stuff like that. And that's been another layer of, you know, it's not a direct meeting, but it's a it's an information sharing that that um, everybody knows what's potentially going on, and uh, and allows us to function at uh, at the highest level we could potentially function at. Yeah, earlier you both had some comments uh, or the importance of conflict resolution, Todd, and then Phil, you had a really great line. I believe you said disagreement behind closed doors and one voice through one door. So let's talk about that a little bit because we know conflict arises and how about conflict between like two disciplines, say we have strength conditioning and athletic medicine and, um, or, you know, sports science, just conflicting opinions about a specific decision related to player performance. How does that get resolved? And ultimately what's the decision that's being made? How does that workflow happen to a point where we actually have to be in the sandbox and make that choice? And I'm going to ask, Phil, go ahead. No, I mean, yeah, look, we, we try to address that because we do want, you know, and as, as Todd's talked about, we want people to have different opinions. We want people to debate things. Um, so we just try to have a very clear process for how we're going to get to each decision, how we're going to approach each problem we may have and over the course of our offseason you know we've you know over the course of the first year I was here we built an, an operations manual which is a you know a yeah, 200 page long document which tries to outline all of the things that we may need to deal with and, and put a very clear process in place for those and every year we come back and we split that up amongst the group and everyone gets you know 20 pages each and they come back and they represent it and we re-debate it so hopefully before your season starts We've got a pretty good idea of what process should happen each with with all of the the pain points we might come up with across the season um and as part of that we try to define who ultimately will take will be accountable at each level of that process um but part of that process is presenting to the group this is what we're working through with this injury this is what we're working through with this athletic development program um and so the group can all have uh, input into it, but it will be predefined who ultimately should be making the who will be accountable for the final decision. We we have another phrase that we try to use, which is individual accountability, but group responsibility. So whatever wherever we end up, the group is responsible because everyone's had an opportunity to have input. But there will be one person who's ultimately accountable for making sure that things happen. Now, if through the course of that debate, there is a significant difference of opinion and it's not clearly getting to, to a point where it's going to get resolved easily, then I'll, I'll be the, the independent arbiter in that relationship, you know, and ultimately if we can't get to if an agreement between a, you know, a strength coach and an athletic trainer working on a particular injury rehab. Um, and to be fair, like it's rare that we would not be able to find that point of agreement, but if we can't, then it would fall to me to become the arbiter in that relationship and ensure we get to, 
um, to a common point, and then it would be fall on on everyone involved to to commit to that to commit to the approach that we got to. Um, and if you have a group who who does have a, and this is where you know getting back to the, you know whatever your individual skill set is, if you have a core approach that's the same, if you have core values that are the same, that you encourage debate, but you in, you encourage cooperation, then you you have a clear process of what you're working through. You shouldn't get to a point where it becomes personal or it becomes difficult. You know, well, that I shouldn't say that because it can it can become difficult because you've got you know highly intelligent driven people trying to, to to do their very best in a high pressure situation. But yeah, said so it, it should get to a point where we can all commit to it and and move forward. And and that's where the, the best functioning groups get to. You know, the conflict that may happen at any given point doesn't uh, doesn't rear itself as a problem. You know, it just creates competitiveness that ends up as cooperation. I'm going to keep stealing Todd's lines now. So, another one really well said. I mean, I, you know, Phil's point of we we want highly competitive people that that feel like their point of view could be relevant in helping create the solution. Um, and I would lie if if I didn't say that sometimes that becomes contentious. Um, I, I would say this, though, that I think as leaders, it gives us an opportunity to teach our people on how to articulate and communicate in a productive way, right? And, and so if and when that communication becomes somewhat emotional or personal, you have to mediate it, right? You have to, he, he used the word arbitrator. Um, that's not acceptable. Right. And, and I think that just defining that behavior that, look, this is this is not something that's personal. This is something that we're talking about to try to come up with a solution. And and the art of communication is key in that. And it gives you an opportunity to teach the people within your group how to do that. Right. Um, and it's not easily said than done at times. Um, but I do think it's a key part to to performance groups growing. Right. Like, and my, my thought process has been really challenged, you know, and, and I, and I was pretty staunch in where I, I stood in, in wanting to, you know, accomplish some things. And, and I've tried to keep my mind open and I've really been able to learn through those processes that um, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat at our level. And, um, and sometimes skinning that cat um, has to include how the player sees the world. Right. And, and so our players, they come from different backgrounds. They have different influences on their training. They hold a teddy bear, right? I call it the teddy bear. They, they have a comfort zone of this is what I know and this is what I got. And, and so it requires a, a balance of us, not only as a staff coming up with a solution, but now how do we communicate that with understanding the teddy bear that the, that the athlete's holding, right? And, and there's a real, there's an art in that, you know, that how can you educate an athlete on why this would potentially be the best um, strategy to help them go from where they want to get to. Um, so there's another layer in there, right? There's, there's the staff, but then you have the player. And if you had a highly successful player that's done it a particular way his whole career, it's hard to, it's hard to rebuke that he's done, you know, why fix something that isn't broke, 
right? Um, and so there's a lot of layers in the problem solving, which I kind of love. <laughs> and, um, you know, we call it, sometimes we catch cannonballs, you know, and you catch them before they blow a hole in the boat. You know, someone fires a cannonball, it's, it has a chance to ruin the team culture. And do you have people that can reach up and catch a cannonball and put it down on the ground before it blows a hole in the boat? Um, and, and so I love the individual accountability piece to how Phil spoke about it. But at the end of the day, Phil and I are both going to be responsible for how that, that strategy and solution gets implemented and if it creates a result. And so we, we as leaders have to be able to push back when we feel like there's a reason that we sit in the seats that we sit in is because of a lot of mistakes and a lot of learning. You know, we've been on the earth maybe a little bit longer and been influenced by some great athletes and great coaches. And so we've been able to see a lot of things that work and don't work. Um, but at the end of the day, I love the word accountability, you know, and, and, um, and, but at the end of the day, if, if Phil and I feel like this, you got to step in and make that decision, then that's what you have to do as a leader. Yeah, some great responses there. I appreciate that. And Todd mentioning, you know, it, it's great if you have the best people, the best systems in place and the best people to fill that system in place. But at the end of the day, if that can't be communicated to the player and it can't be implemented with the player and understanding how the player learns and, and the player can't cooperate with that, then you know, surely that doesn't matter. So uh, I like the insight with that and the teddy bear. Uh, how about uh, in sport? Obviously, you know, athletes go down with injury. And uh, when this happens, how do you leverage your entire high performance team? What's that communication like? I'm curious to know a little bit about like the sports psychology part of it, uh, all the way to the chef, uh, to athletic medicine, and just like how from the moment that happens, like the conversations that start to happen and where that information is all that get funneled to the both of you. And then you start to help, you know, create this plan and how do things happen like that from the moment the player goes down and then kind of like who's involved at these different steps and checkpoints throughout the reconditioning process and return to play process. And Phil, I'm going to go with you and just really any insights you can provide about, Hey, injury happens. This is kind of our workflow. This is what happens. Yeah. So, I mean, again, we have a, yeah, we have a very clear process that we review every year is what should happen when an injury happens. And for us, it starts with we'll have two independent people assess that injury. So typically with most players, they'll have a particular trainer, physical therapist or athletic trainer they may work with regularly. Um, but we don't want them to only see that one person. So we'll say, okay, first point of call when we have an injury is we're going to have two independent sets of eyes assess that. One will be the trainer that they typically work with, and the second may be a team doctor. It may be myself. It may be one of the other uh, senior trainers that we have on staff. From that point, um, there's sort of two divergent things that happen. One is that I, you know, I'll go off to the the other things that need to happen in the NBA, which is you know, contacting the coach, contacting the general manager, contacting the player agent, and putting in place things outside of the injury. And then from an injury perspective, we bring our whole performance group in any injury that's going to keep someone out for more than seven days. Uh, we create a return to play uh, program within the software package that we use. Uh, that return to play program will involve setting criteria to move people through. You know, we've tried to develop a common language of the different stages of rehab. Um, the person who will who will drive that rehab is the tip is the staff member who typically associates with that player will put down the first draft 
everyone in the group, uh, including sports scientists, including strength coaches, will be in the meeting to, to have the opportunity to debate that. Um, we'll talk here. We'll, the, the person ultimately responsible for leading that rehab will tidy that up, uh, post that meeting. We'll then bring it to myself and we'll sit with it again and just review that this is the process we're going to work through with this person. And then we have our lead uh, sports scientist slash uh, director of athletic development, Jace Delaney, will take over the rehab side from the weight room from the SNC side and he'll work directly with uh, with a particular trainer who will manage that injury you know, through that process. And then essentially any time that they're moving away from the original process, and that happens obviously because things never don't always go exactly the way you, you would love them to, um, then it's the responsibility of them to come back to the group uh, in our update meetings and say, listen, we've, we've changed for this reason and that reason and to justify why they've moved away from the original process that everyone in the group had the, had the opportunity to, to have input into. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's how we work through our injury process and, you know, that's within our group. And then, you know, being the, the beauty of the NBA with some of the things that go on, you know, outside of that, we may involve... Um, you know, we, we will always involve the player agent. The player agent may may want to seek a second opinion and per player's CBA, they're entitled to get that. So um, that's a, that side of it I would manage that I would then tend to reach out to the external consultant if, if, if that's what the player and the player agent, you know, would like to do. Um, and typically that's always worked pretty well. You know, most of the agents have have staff that they associate with that we've got relationships with as well. So, it, it, you know, it doesn't tend, it tends to be fairly, well managed, but yeah, that's a that's sort of a concurrent process that's going along with with what we're doing within our within our performance stuff. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that and and the transparency there, Todd. How about yourself uh, and what happens in your organization and within your team upon injury? Yeah, you know what, uh, we're very similar. Um, in the beginning of every year, this it's a real critical piece in in the performance model, and and it's critical because of a couple different reasons. You know, sometimes it takes a while to be able to diagnose an injury correctly. And, and so every year we sit down with the entire staff and go through the process of, a, of an acute injury and, and who is responsible for what. And, and the ability to have that unit really close and tight-lipped is important because it's not about how fast you come to a decision. It's getting the decision correct. And so... Um, that's clearly defined to our entire group who's in charge of messaging the athlete because sometimes you can get a group and they'll catch a whiff of something and they want to go to the athlete and say, hey, this is what happened. No, that's not going to happen. This is, we're going to have certain protocols in place and these people are going to be the ones that deliver the information. And then after that information is delivered to the right people, the stakeholders in the space, the athlete, the, the um the agent, you know, um, management, then we could start to come up with the return to the return to play protocol. And who is, who is the direct contact that's going to lead that, but then who's the direct contact in the performance space and the player development space. Um, and we'll define who those people are. Um, and the return to play protocol is going to be criteria based. Um, just like, just like Phil's like, obviously, from a localized standpoint of tissue tolerance and, and functionality to that, to that tissue, 
um, and then you start to move up the spectrum, right? How you start to put them into more global movement patterns, um, under load, under speed, under under larger ranges of motion. Um, and then when, at what point do they tick all those boxes in that criteria that we return them to the uh, player development coaches? And now what does that return to play look like? You know, the ability to do specific offensive moves, the ability to handle different closeouts and different defensive patterns, body on body contact, and then layering it back into finally the, you know, the last piece is, you know, being able to put it into three on three, four on four, five on five, um, where there's a little more cognitive load um, in the process, right? Um, but very similar to, to Phil's and, um, but it's, I think it's a real critical piece in, in the performance, in the high performance model is injuries happen. What, what we deal with is really demanding. 82 games, we're traveling, you know, all over the place. And, um, and so the communication um, of this particular part of, of the performance model, I think is, is super critical. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that, both of you guys. We're going to switch gears a little bit here, but Phil, you definitely have a ton of experience outside of the U.S. coming from Australia, spent some time in the U.K. What would you say is, if there are any, um, differences compared to the U.S. in regards to a high-performance model? I mean, it's, it's interesting because when I first came out to San Antonio, uh, which was my first experience in the U.S. was with, with the Spurs. Um, part of the reason they recruited me was because they were trying to change to a more uh, Australian-based performance model, with, you know, what they referred to at the time. And I think the Australian-based performance model and the European-based, certainly the English-based, is very similar. So I'm not sure it should necessarily be prescribed to Australia per se, but but they were looking to, to move down that path. Um, and so I straight away went into an environment where we were trying to, to work under that way. And that had kind of already, that process had really happened at, at Boston before I got here. So I don't have a lot of experience working in the traditional US model. And my, my understanding of the difference is um, really is that, you know, someone having someone in a high performance manager or director of high performance role or whatever you want to call it in a, in a leadership role in this space, is about ensuring that you have a common philosophy and all of the different groups are not working in a siloed way, that all of the different skill sets within a performance group are working in one way and with one voice moving forward. And I think, again, without really having a lot of experience in a traditional metal model, it was a little more siloed with people all reporting directly to the coach or the GM on their particular skill sets. And I think that model can work very effectively if you've got all the right people in place, but it puts a lot on the GM or on the head coach to be taking information from a lot of different people. So I think um, that that was the primary difference was that, that, that the type of role that both Todd and I are in now was, was about bringing that together and, and driving that forward in, in, in one direction for a group. Um, and I think that allows us to have more influence over the program, which ultimately, if we're doing our jobs well, should allow us to create more success, you know, because we can, as a singular voice with, with more with specialties within that, offer a more valuable 
service. So I think ultimately that type of model is becoming more and more common, and I think it allows to you know allows us to to get more success. But you know, it's I said I didn't grow up in the American model, the traditional model, so I can't really comment that much on it. And there's always challenges coming from country to to, to country and sport to sport. You know, I've worked a lot in football, um, in soccer, European football, um, you know, as well as in, you know, with some experience with, with rugby league and AFL, but I really had no basketball background coming in. Um, and so I was really lucky that San Antonio were looking to do something out of the box and, and change their model and bring in someone with a different thought process. But at the same time, that brings challenges. I know um, you, you guys mentioned before before we got on about having a common language and that that thing, you know, it was my probably midway through my second season in Texas. And I walked into the coach's office and there's a whiteboard that had a list of words just seemingly random words maybe 15 words i was looking at this whiteboard and i'm like you know and i couldn't you know and i I looked and i was like what's this what what are what are these and he said oh that's all the things you say then we don't know what you're talking about (laughs) and literally just picking out terms that no one else understood that either were football terms or australian terms or whatever else so um yeah, it brings some special challenges coming in from internationally, but um, you know, ultimately, I've been lucky that everyone's wanted to, have to work in a similar system, so I've never really had any any pushback in in doing that here. That's great. I like the full transparency too, just like on the whiteboard for everybody to yeah. see. Let's yeah, just. And I, I, it took me two years to notice it before I was like, yeah, <laughs> they're all kind of things that make sense to me, but I don't know. They're not related. All these words, I don't get it. You know. Oh, I love that. Thank you, Phil. Todd, over to you. I mean, you got 21 years in college basketball. Do you see a potential for high performance model in college or is it a little bit tougher because of the amount of sports? I mean, being at Texas, what is there? At least 25 plus sports, maybe 30. How do you see for a potential or maybe not at all uh, for a high perform or a hybrid maybe? Well, I think when you're lucky to be at a university like the University of Texas that has the educational resources, you could start to develop the grassroots to a performance model, right? Um, You know, I was lucky when I was at Texas, I I had a large intern program where I had four or five kids every semester that created a, a pretty incredible think tank, you know, that we had some amazing conversations. Um, I think it, I think it depends on on the infrastructure to the university, right? And if you have that infrastructure to be able to build out some of these spaces, the nutrition, you know, the, um, a physical therapist, you know, school, um, and can you work with those departments to potentially develop a grassroots kind of level and teach young kids what this potentially looks like? Um, you know, Phil used the word silo. And, and, you know, when you're thinking about we work in a team environment. There should be nothing that should be siloed. And, and in the college setting, you know, traditionally it was, you have the strength coach and you have the athletic trainer. There wasn't a lot of depth to it. Right. And and that's where, you know, I was lucky then because it allowed me to have a generalist view of performance. Right. And so I was in charge of trying to learn all these other aspects to performance, uh, which helped me then. 
but yeah, I do think that um, it could be implemented. It's just, you know, certain universities might not have the infrastructure and resources to be able to do it at larger depths. Um, but like when I was in college, there was no load monitoring system, you know, and we did it subjectively, you know, on a daily basis. Hey, I would ask the guys, what did you feel like today's practice was one out of 10, a 14, you know, like, okay, you know, and, and we would highlight those days in red and the days that they would say, you know, a, a six, six or seven, uh, we'd high those, highlight those in orange and the days that would blow fives, we'd highlight them in white. And you could, when you put 10 days together on a Excel calendar, it kind of gave you a, it, it's a subjective feedback on what the last 10 days look like. Um, but I think there's a large, there's a, well, I, I, you know what, I've been out of athletics now for eight, eight years, college athletics. And so I know that it's evolved to a certain degree, but I think that there's a larger opportunity to, to develop it at, in the collegiate, at the collegiate level. Great. And I, and I think the biggest thing from that is like that communication piece. So like you had your different colors based on, you know, what was happening with each athlete, at least that enhancement of communication is growing at that college level. Um, and I think it's, it's trending in the, the appropriate direction. I do want to thank you guys for your time. Definitely learned a lot. Um, I'm going to flick it over to Gabe to wrap up, but thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you guys having on. Appreciate you. Man. All right. So we're going to finish with two kind of quick, fun questions that I have for the both of you. Uh, number one is going to be favorite city to travel to in the NBA. And give you a moment. If either person's ready to go, you can blurt it well, out. I would say it used to be San Francisco because I love the city, but after last year's finals, I'm, I'm going to have to. Really <laughs> yeah, yeah, good for you. Um, you know, I, I always loved traveling to the to the West Coast when I first got into the league. So I was really lucky to end up where, where I am. But um, a close second for me would be um, I love New York City and um, and just the diversity to it and um, the restaurants, the food. I just I love the hustle to it. Um, and then my sleeper is I, I really like Chicago. I like the city of Chicago is a great uh, is a great city, too. But. There's some great cities in the NBA, um, but I feel like I'm lucky that I'm living in uh, in one of them right now. So, yeah, Todd, you're a, you're a food guy. You're a foodie. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, do, I do like food. And there's a lot of foodie cities, though. Yeah, no doubt. Well, appreciate that. And then the last thing we're going to ask here, it's something we ask all our uh, panelists that join us for the KES, is what does your own training look like right now? I know you guys are on the road. It's not always easy to, you know, to be getting workouts in, but is it practice what you preach? You know, you're around training conditioning all the time. Are you training for something specific, experimenting, or just training to be healthy? What's it looking like, Phil? My training is probably the, the butt of many jokes amongst the outperformance staff. Um, I'm not training for anything specific other than to try and be healthy um, and not be too sloppy as I get close to 50. So, um, yeah, I try to work out consistently because I really enjoy working out. So, you know, I do a very basic alternating lifting and, and intermittent cardio program just to probably for my mind as much as anything else i actually i really enjoy working out so i try to spend you know 20 30 minutes four or five times a week doing something very basic but um 
certainly the strength coaches uh, wouldn't judge my strength work as being the most effective. I would, let's put it that way. How about you, Todd? I feel you. You know, as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm 52 now. There's a premium on mobility for me. And, um, you know, I was a strength coach by trade for 25 plus years. Um, as I'm getting older, my mobility and my cardiovascular system is really important to me and my ability to move within space, you know, and, and so submaximal loads with just moving on vectors and, um, and I try to do it early in the morning because it knocks knocks me out and helps me get maybe a little bit better sleep at night. But as Phil knows, it can be challenging when you're getting into some cities that are late. But I'm trying to tick the box on a daily basis. If I can get it in the morning, usually helps me sleep. But if we have some late nights and travel, I'll always try to touch base and do a little bit of something in the in the afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. Well. You know, that's all the time we have for tonight. And just a huge thank you to our attendees that joined us live for KES and a huge thank you to our two panelists, Todd Wright and Phil Coles. It is the beginning of the NBA season, as we had mentioned, and they're traveling across the U.S. So we're incredibly appreciative of their time and willingness to join us tonight. Please be sure to give them both a follow on social media. Todd, you can follow on Instagram at Todd Wright underscore coach. And Phil, you can follow on Twitter at PC Elite Perform. This discussion will be publicly available on the Kaiser Fitness YouTube page, and the audio will be up on Spotify as well under Kaiser Education Series. Thank you, everybody, and have a great night. Thanks, guys.